Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This week on BASIC, from Portlandia, Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. I remember the first moment, it was in the pilot, Put a Bird on It. We had been shooting every scene together and Put a Bird on It. There were these little vignettes where we had to improvise on our own. And I remember John Kreisel just said, okay, action. And I'm just there and there's no script and I'm supposed to improvise all these ideas about putting a bird on it. I was so, so nervous. I'll add to that 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 was Carrie's idea. It was such a funny pitch. Even now, I'm just remembering her just pointing out, she's like, everything is just like, anything that's considered art just like has a bird on it. Like you go to any (laughs) shop and there's like, and I just, I felt both foolish and exhilarated. How many birds have I bought, you know? (laughs) You felt called out. I felt way called out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I once went to a wedding in Portland. And I'm Jen Chaney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I always, always put a bird on it. Jen, our guests today are Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, the stars and creators of Portlandia, one of cable's quirkiest and best-loved sketch comedy shows. Fred, who's well-known for his work on Saturday Night Live, and Carrie, guitarist and vocalist for the seminal all-female punk band Slater Kinney, joined forces and their satirical-slash-absurdist senses of humor to make the show, which ran for eight hilarious, critically acclaimed seasons on IFC. Portlandia featured Carrie and Fred in virtually every sketch, playing a variety of quirky characters based in a heightened version of Portland, Oregon, that to some became synonymous with the city itself. They also brought an impressive array of guest stars spanning the gamut from Kyle MacLachlan to the B-52s. Over the course of its seven-year run, Portlandia was nominated for 22 Emmy Awards, winning four, and also received a Peabody Award. It closed up its Women and Women bookshop for good in 2018, but we're reopening it for the sake of this episode— So come along with us as we re-enter Portlandia with Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen. And don't forget to stick around after the interview for some additional thoughts from me and Doug. So we are thrilled to welcome Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein to BASIC. Thank you for being here. And we're going to start by asking you the same question we ask all of our guests out of the gate, which is, do you remember when you first saw or got BASIC cable? I'll start with Fred. Uh, definitely. I think I was in maybe sixth grade or something. And I remember there was like a v- early version of, I, l- I grew up on Long Island and there was like a version of cable called WHT, which was like really limited. And then somewhere in there, there, there was like a new cable company. And I just remember that box with a clicker where you could click to different channels on the lower row or the higher row. And <laughs> I, a night flight was on there, and I do remember HBO that had that like home box office. You remember home box office? <laughs> home box, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> what about you, Carrie? I also remember the cable box. Ours had a dial, like it was just a little dial that you go along the, um, you know, the channels for. I remember MTV. That was probably what I watched the most because I just was obsessed. And I remember those early 
videos, Eddie Grant, Electric Avenue. That was on a lot that year. Um, I don't think we had home box office, but I would watch it at friends' houses. And I think it was just movies. I mean, they mm-hmm. obviously there was that's yeah no original programming, but but movies that felt. But that seems like a lot later. So I, I feel like it was mostly getting to watch music. Well, there you go. I remember there was like a, a I don't I, I don't know if it was a music show. But they would play music videos. I don't know what it was on, but I remember seeing Bow Wow Wow, I Want Candy. As mm-hmm. a, it, but it wasn't MTV? It wasn't MTV. Huh. Could have been, could have been Night Flight. Uh, Maybe it was Night Flight. Or was it Friday Night Videos? Or Friday Night <gasps> Videos. Friday Night Videos. That's what it was. Ooh, Friday Night Video. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I also, in Seattle, we had Almost Lot. And um, that Bill Nye was on it. Mm-hmm. And um, it came on before it well someone will correct me it was either before or after saturday night live so it was almost live um but it was our local show and it was it was pretty great it was uh, sorry by local i mean seattle right so the two of you have traveled in or traveled in similar circles earlier in your career but didn't meet till an snl party or an snl episode can you tell us about how you guys first met it's very funny that you're asking because we literally went over this two days ago <laughs> glad we prepared <laughs> yeah not knowing we would be asked um fred was up with me in in seattle and we were having dinner with my family and someone asked us this question and this has actually been a debate between fred and i we we often do not land on the same answer but i think we somewhat agree <laughs> that we met at sf Sketchfest before the snl after party Oh. Uh, and and it was Fred and wasn't it Marilyn Ricecub and uh, was it the did she also perform that night or was that different or was it also Karen Kilgariff <laughs> yes like like but you're right I think it was like Marilyn and I think there was I wonder if Karen was on that show but there's like a couple people right yeah and I was living in the Bay Area at the time and for, and we went. To, but I think you invited us. So that that's very murky. See, so maybe SML was before. We really should um, pin this down, you know, for um, more succinct answers. But we, we'd rather have you have to edit it later for people to be like, God, I wish they could have answered this more quickly. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm changing the wiki right now as you speak. So, <laughs> Well, I, I will say I got that information from an interview you did with Vulture, where you said you met at an SNL after party and that, Fred, you were wearing a, a pin with Carrie's face on it. Yes. That did happen. We just don't know when in the chronology, but that did happen. So it's not an apocryphal story. We did not lie to you. Okay, cool. Cool. (laughs) So do you remember when you first started talking about working on a project together? I mean, did that happen quickly or or what was the sort of timeline for that? Pretty quickly. I think pretty quickly we were figuring out what should we do. And uh, the idea of putting a band together sort of didn't resonate it just sort of that went out the window and we just thought just because of the way portland was we thought maybe we could just do something local that's that seems like portland fred you sort of started off in the music world right and then kind of found your way into comedy so you have that you're this sort of this music comedy person and carrie you are also obviously but you establish yourself as a musician in your amazing band so when did you get like the comedy itch or was that something that was always with you? Well, not necessarily comedy, but in 
middle school and even a little bit before that, I definitely loved performing. I would, in the summers, I would go to theater camp and I would audition for school plays and get parts and loved that. I loved the camaraderie. I just kind of liked the nerdiness of it, the discipline and, and being on stage. So I knew I kind of had that performer's bug. But then when music came along and in terms of, you know, varying from the pop music of the day to punk and indie, and I got my first guitar, there was just an immediacy to that that kind of obliterated all the other things I was doing. So everything else went on the back burner in terms of performance. And it really wasn't until Fred, I guess, reached out, uh, you know, but I would do things like act in my uh, friends, like film school, you know, short films and stuff like that. But it wasn't, the comedy stuff didn't come until Fred, you know, dragged me into it, kicking and screaming and said, I think there might be something there. And it, I, you know, so, so much credit to Fred for just kind of allowing me that, that space to figure it out and trusting my sensibility and allowing me to trust my instincts. I, uh, I read your book, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, and you talk about some of this in there, sort of how you had this performer's bug when you were a kid. And this is a sidebar personal question, but you formed a Duran Duran cover band with your sister, I believe. And this is how I know that we would have been best friends if we had known each other as kids, because I think that's amazing. And you made, you like made sort of instruments, right? Yeah. So it actually wasn't my sister, no offense oh. to my sister who I love, but you know, she was a couple years younger and I just needed to hang out with kids my age at the time. Yeah. It was little D Duran Duran and uh, that was the name of our cover band. And we just fashioned instruments out of uh, like scrap, you know, plywood from, you know, our, our parents' garages. And, you know, we sort of cut them into guitar shapes and keyboard shapes and then painted them. And we basically spent that whole summer rehearsing, which was really just playing <laughs> Duran Duran songs and lip syncing and dancing around. But we called ourselves a covers band and I was obviously a huge Duran Duran fan. So yes, Jen, we would have been very good friends. Yes. So prior to Portlandia, there was a, uh, like a web, was it a web series or a? Yeah, we just did these videos just to put online that we would just shoot with a friend of ours. And they were just these little shorts and this was Thunder Ant, right? Thunder, Thunder Ant, Ant, yeah. Right. And it was yeah. more like sort of like funny for us. Like we just, it entertained us. And we had the feminist bookstore and just some other, I remember we did It's Closed about freaking out about a place being closed. And then, um, <laughs> which I still go through. Sometimes I'm I, like, I was going to say post COVID, that's a thing. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's upsetting. Like what? <laughs> so we just had these videos and it sort of made it, easier to pitch the show to IFC when we were ready to. So Tim, who we were just talking about, our manager, was sort of like, what do you want to do next? And it was like, well, let's do Thund Thunder Ant. But, you know, that's just before we got the name Portlandia. But we just thought that that was the way to go. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comedy was, like you said, focused on Portland and, and became part of what you did in Portlandia. What was it about Portland? I mean, I know, I think you were living in Portland at the time, Carrie, if I'm not mistaken, but it, it clearly inspired something in, in both of you. Well, I think, I mean, Fred loved visiting Portland and I, there was something about the sensibility here. I, so much of, much of it was something we really respected, which was an earnestness and a sincerity, but also about the ways that like, if you take that sensibility too far that sentiment too far i should say 
that you start to butt up against some contradictions and a little bit of hypocrisy. And we kind of liked playing in that, in that world for a little bit, you know, which was really just an extension of ourselves. I mean, we felt like all these things that we, you know, cared a lot about sometimes got too extreme. So we started to sort of explore the minutiae of that and how those traits could be embodied in different characters. And Portland as a city just seemed to be representational of that, seemed to embody those those things. So yeah, we loved it. And we we liked that it just looked different than LA or New York, which are two cities that you see a lot of on screen. Yeah. So it just it just had a different palette, you know, color palette and uh patina to it. And the people who live here, they just look, you know, they don't look like the people that are always on your TV. So yeah, it, it just helped kind of, you know, ignite our imagination, I think. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Do you remember pitching the show to IFC and what you're... What you were thinking back then, IFC, I think at that time was just sort of kind of evolving into like a, a comedy channel of sorts, having been sort of a place for independent films previously. We were thinking more like, oh, it'd be great if we got to do a pilot, even to shoot something professionally right. was a thrill. So 
in in a way the the feeling was like hey well any version of the show that we can do if we get to do this kind of comedy or this you know something with thunder ant if we can extend it great so so the pitch didn't feel like oh please you know this is going to make or break us it's more like oh let's let's just have an opportunity to make more and and that's i think right away they they went for it and it was their idea to, to shoot it in portland that's true. I also I was going to add that we actually pitched it to other places. Uh, oh, okay. One of them being Com- Comedy Central, and they <sighs> said we don't do sketch comedy. That's get no one likes sketch anymore. And of course, and then of course, yeah. After that, it was nothing but sketch. Yeah. Yeah, but that's fine. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm sure I handed down that mandate at some point. So <laughs> <laughs> I was I was prone to change my mind here and there. It's all right. We all do. Well, we were we got to work with Robert Kreisel down the line on the Kroll Show. Um, which I think he worked on. And also Allison Silverman was part of the original Colbert team. Oh, yeah. Way back when. Yeah, John Kreisel, our director, who really sort of focused the, our, our ideas for, you know, the show. That's when we started to, like, there was an aesthetic to it and that he really was a tremendous part of. So when IFC picked it up, did they pick it up to series immediately or did you have to do a pilot as proof of concept? We had to do a pilot and Fred was still on SNL and, and would be for the first couple seasons of Portlandia. And what was fortunate, because as you know, you learn later, like often the pilot to series pickup can be very protracted and painful and lots of, you know, reconsideration and whatnot. But because there was kind of a time crunch and Fred had to get back to SNL. We shot the pilot, uh, I think in spring or something in, or early, early summer. And we just, you know, Lauren Michaels, who's one of our producers and also uh, Andrew Singer, our other producer just kind of said, listen, we need to know because if you guys want to make this show, Fred has to, it has to get picked up and we have to shoot it this summer. And so they only had a couple of weeks to decide, which is very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And they, they picked it up and we shot uh, the rest of the episodes for the first season that summer. And then Fred went back to SNL. And what, what was the writing process like and how many people were in the room? And, and I do have to say, I, I, I spent uh, the weekend taking a, going back and, and uh, watching a few episodes and I haven't seen them in a, in a bit. And it's just so remarkable. You know, A, virtually, I think every scene you are together and, you know, that, that chemistry is just unbelievable, no matter what the character, what the setting, what the place. So sort of a two-pronged question. What was the what was the writing process like? And was it always conceived as like, oh, we're going to do this like together every step of the way? Uh, the writing, how many of us were there? Five? Maybe there might have been five of us, I think, in the beginning. <laughs> Me, you, John. And Allison, really. Those were the, the first season. Oh, was four. Four. Yeah. We had... Early, early on, we had Jason Manzoukas, who's a writer, actor. He came in, I think that was just for the pilot, but only Allison came with us for series. So it was just the four of us (laughs) up in Portland that first season. Right? Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. And how much of it was improvised, if at all, once you get on set or? A lot. The first season, (laughs) a lot was improvised. And I was really scared. I mean, that was, you know, a comfort zone for Fred. But yeah, it became more scripted in later seasons. But a lot of it was was 
quite improvisational where we really just had a premise and we kind of knew what the beats were, but often we would find something on the day that was wilder and, you know, more left of center than, than what we had imagined on the page. And we would just go with it. And I, to Fred's credit, that's mostly him just going off on some tangent and be like, Oh, this is funnier. This is going to be what it's about. No, I think it was a, it was a team effort for sure. Just, I'll just say that. Yeah, it was, everyone was improvising. And just that first year was like, as the years went, we did less and less of it just to save time to shoot more sketches. But uh, in the beginning, it was, yeah, it felt like anything goes. You mentioned, Carrie, that you were a little nervous because you hadn't really done improv, at least not in this sort of realm. How did you work through that? Like, I'm sure it helps having Fred there, the someone that you're friends with and, and, you know, can encourage you. But what, what was the, what was your way of getting through that fear? Well, a couple of things. Yeah. One is, was just Fred being very supportive and it's a cliche thing to say, but it's kind of like playing tennis with someone who's better than you. And you're like, okay, I have to race my game. It really is helpful. I also give a lot of credit to Alison Silverman, who was sort of in kind of writing under her tutelage. She, I didn't really, had never been in a room where I needed to pitch. And even though there was only four of us and it was a very supportive environment, she would often circle back to my ideas and say like, like something like, did you read, which was in the first season. And I had pitched that as, as an idea, but I wasn't great at pitching. And so, you know, Allison would come in the next day and be like, you know, I think that's a good idea. This, did you read? And so she was, I just had a lot of encouragement coming from, from all sides and music helped a lot too, you know, coming. um, So I, I had been on stage. I had been, you know, I had had moments of of sort of walking on that ledge and, and trying not to be afraid and knowing that, you know, risk was part of it and taking chances could actually, you know, improve upon, what I was doing. So that, uh, that helped too, you know, mm-hmm. that I wasn't, it was the whole concept of it wasn't really foreign to me, but I remember the first moment it was in the pilot, put a bird on it. We I think that ended up being maybe the second episode, but anyway, we shot that in the in the pilot and, uh, Dan Pasternak, who was the executive at comedy central, we had been shooting every scene together and put a bird on it, you know, to your point, Doug, we're usually in the scenes together, but there were these little vignettes where, I, we had to improvise on our own. And, and I remember John Chrysler just said, okay, action. And I'm just there and there's no script and I'm supposed to improvise all these ideas about putting a bird on it. I was so, so nervous. And after that day, I think I was able to get through it, but I was really, I was like, this is it. I can't do this. Like in the moment, I just thought I need a scene partner. And it, yeah, I I guess it was just, I just dove in basically. Meanwhile, Put a Bird on It turned into <laughs> signature moments of the show. I'll add to that 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 was Carrie's idea. She came in with that as a pitch. And she, it was such a funny pitch. Even now, I'm just remembering her just pointing out. She's like, everything is just like, anything that's considered art just like has a bird on it. Like you go to any <laughs> shop and there's like, and, uh, and I just, I felt both foolish and uh, exhilarated too. You know, just like, <laughs> How many birds have I bought? You know, <laughs> so that was, but it, it was one of the, you felt called out. <laughs> I felt way called out, but uh, it was just, you know, that's like she that, out of the gate, really. That's was Carrie's idea, like that for a sketch. It's can it's conceptual as as uh, opposed to, hey, how about a couple who uh, go to the airport? It, it it was something that was pure concept. Like this is something that's happening in life right now, right? Which was great. 
and also hyper-specific, which I think so much of the comedy in Portlandia is very, very specific, which I appreciate. But if Portlandia had a catchphrase, I feel like put a bird on it would be the catchphrase. <laughs> like, do you guys still get people saying that to you or, or mentioning it to you? Absolutely. Yeah. People, uh, if they want me to sign something, they'll say, you know, when you put it, I just went to a hotel and they made a card for me, welcome, and then they drew a bird. <laughs> <laughs> we put a bird on it. This is uh, a week ago. Yeah, always. That is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, we feel lucky. I honestly, like, you don't realize it at the time. It's often, well, I mean, obviously, as the years went on, we, we really were full of gratitude for the community and the longevity of the show. But later, when you realize how fortunate you are to do something for eight seasons with someone who's you know, one of your best friends and that there are moments and catchphrases in the show that have merged with other people's lives, you know, that they carry with them. Like you, you can't go into something thinking that's going to happen. You never assume that, but I think we're never not thankful for that. Like when it, it's, it's, we, we are not jaded about how lucky we were that it had an impact on the show and that people saw themselves in the characters and in the setups and something like put a bird on it or AO river. You know, if people are ordering food at a restaurant, they always think about that first uh, early sketch with calling the chicken. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it was a way for people to kind of translate their lives, you know, for other people like, okay, this year you're explaining what I do. Thank you. Like, and for people to feel seen, I, I think we just, we really enjoy, you know, to this day, to Fred's point. You had mentioned uh, music a little earlier, Carrie. Music obviously played a, a, a big role in the show as well. And did, was your collaboration the same on music as it was on comedy and that seamless and, and, and seemingly so easy? Yes. Uh, the music was as seamless on Portlandia as it was in, in Slater Kinney um, because Fred also came from a musical background. So we just shared so much of the same worldview. You know, we came up with the same, a lot of the same heroes. We understood the minutia of that world, the way people talked, the way people related to each other. And we saw how that could be reinterpreted or presented in a different context. You know, that very kind of like didactic, but well-meaning sort of punk rock vernacular, the way people kind of moved through that world we saw that that could be translated into a feminist bookstore, you know, where people are very well-meaning and claim to be inclusive, but are very alienating to most of their customers. You know, I think punk rock has a similar feeling sometimes, even when you're part of it, you're like, yeah, we like everyone. Actually, no, we hate everyone. So anyway, we, um, but yeah, so Fred and I felt like had a very seamless collaborative dynamic. And when we included music on the show, we loved that. I mean, we would just sit in, usually Fred's apartment and just, and write songs and think of melodies. And we did all the interstitial music for the show. We just, right. you know, recorded on guitar and, and drums and had some friends come in and do, you know, a little keyboard and other things. But yeah, I mean, I just love that interconnectivity between all of our interests that we could just funnel that into the show. And I, I think that's why it felt organic and authentic because it really was pulling from all the things that we loved. Mm -hmm. And unlike MTV, there will always be music on Portlandia. That's right. We did an MTV episode. Uh, yeah, I, I went back and watched that because I totally forgot about that with Tabitha and Kurt yeah, Loder yeah. and uh, and Matt. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hilarious. I, that sketch to me is such a Gen X sketch because it's bring back MTV and then you get there and it's like, we did it. Now we don't know what to do. <laughs> We're just standing in front of a green screen. <laughs> and by the way, people still complain in 2023 that MTV doesn't play music anymore. And I'm like, they haven't played music since 1995. In decades. Right. Yeah. Like, where you been? Yeah. Another hallmark of, of Portlandia was just the amazing guest stars that you would have on, some recurring, some that would pop in for just a, a sketch or two. And certainly one of the most prominent ones was Kyle McLaughlin playing the mayor. Could you talk about how that came about? Because I, I assume maybe you thought of him because of his sort, sort of stature in the Pacific Northwest based on his role in Twin Peaks. But how did that come about? Well, our um, as we were starting to write the first season, the director, John Chrysler, was like, we should get someone like Kyle McLaughlin, someone like that. <laughs> and then we we're like, oh, well, why don't we just try to contact him? And then sure enough, he showed up and we met with him and he's at perfect, just perfect for that part. And such a, just an, a, a really harmonious part of that, of the, of the whole show. Mm-hmm. Remember when he first came in and he said, and he, I mean, no, he was not disrespecting either of these shows, but, you know, he had started out in this very, you know, Lynchian world and was, you know, known for all of those, you know, Blue Velvet and then, of course, the Twin Peaks uh, TV world. And he said, you know, I've been doing Sex and the City and Desperate Housewives and I kind of just want to do something cool again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and but it, I mean, it's such credit to him. He took such a leap of faith. I mean, you know, he came to that meeting in this very nondescript office just by himself and just was so open to this idea of like hopping on board this show that no one, you know, we did not know whether it would be successful or not or whether it would land with people. And he was all in. Every time we shot with him, he was all in. I remember when he had to sing, you know, the the mayor sings like the theme song of Portland. He just improvised that song over wow. and over again. That was not pre-written. Yeah, he just, he always dove in with us and he's a true pleasure to work with. And he came back every season. Yeah. yeah. And over time, you had amazing guest stars, all kinds of people. And I think, I think because it was, not only was it a hilarious show, but it was cool. It felt like everybody kind of wanted it to be a part of it on some level. I was talking with an ex-colleague who uh, uh, worked uh, on the show through IFC for many, many years, and she described you know, I guess you guys would mostly shoot in the summer in the early seasons. And she described it as like a summer camp atmosphere. And it was incredibly cool, inspired, talented people all having a great time shooting the show. Does, I mean, is is that apt at all? Or is that, do you remember it that way? Sure, absolutely. Like, I mean, there's something about Portland. There's something about the the sort of small crew that we had that did, did feel like a summer camp. It was, yeah, I remember it the same way. Were there folks that you had on your wish list that never found their way to Portland? Yoko Ono. I always wanted <laughs> oh, her to really? be on. Just, yeah. turned, just turned 90, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Good for her. Uh, yeah, who else? I remember, um, you know who we asked every year? Connie Britton. Oh. <sighs> Love Connie Britton. that every single year. Whoa, and she all she is someone who I am 
sort of friends with, acquaintances with. Anyway, like it wasn't like she wasn't even professionally, it wasn't her people saying no. She just, you know, she's busy. A lot of people want Connie Britton, but I think we asked her every year. And then Fred and, really? and then Fred and John always were like, What about Werner Her Hersog? I was like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Werner? Yeah. <laughs> I remember also Tom Hulse. I remember we a couple seasons we were like, Tom Hulse would be great, but I don't know what happened. I don't. I think he just wasn't able to do it. He lived. I think it's because he lived in the Northwest. We always would hear like, oh, I think these actors live in the Northwest or used to. Or ah. we we always were up for like, you know, sort of making those worlds collide so that like if people knew, they would sort of be like, ah, wait, this is this is another nod to the Pacific Northwest. To go back to Yoko Ono, did did you ask her and she just wasn't available, or what was the situation there? I think a couple times, and yeah, I think she wasn't available. Mm. She wasn't available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she would have been great. Would have been, she would have been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we had non-actors on the show a lot. We had sports figures. <laughs> you know, we had yeah. and yeah, everyone really just was enthusiastic and game for coming into the world and and doing something a little silly and absurd. A little different than like a guest host on SNL, right, Fred, where somebody comes in and the whole show, you know, is kind of focused on them. And in, in your case, they're they're coming in and joining a part of this ecosystem you've created, right? Yes. And it's much shorter and there's less like leaning on them. Right. So they're, yeah, they're a part of a sketch, but it's not like, hey, you're this, you know, you know, special person of the week, which right. is kind of nice. Like it makes it uh, just less pressure. Do you have to take them out to late night dinners like Lauren? I mean, is there that thing? Is there? We kind of, <laughs> in a weird way, didn't have to, but it was like the polite thing to do to like have a dinner, which was always nice. The, the great restaurants. Everybody loves a dinner. Everyone loves a dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, you know, it, it sort of was part of the familial vibe of the show. You know, it's like, Portland is not a place that people usually fly into for two days to do, uh, you know, some work in like it. So we wanted to kind of show off the city and make them feel welcome. And yeah, I think it, it, it wasn't as formal as, you know, going to a dinner sounds, but we, we really did enjoy it. We got to hang out with some wonderful people and just like yeah, Kyle, you know, someone like Jeff Goldblum or Steve Buscemi, these people came back year after year. So we really got to know them and we looked forward to you know, reconnecting with them every summer. When you guys started making the show, obviously Obama was in office. The country felt like it was in a more progressive place. And then by the time you guys ended, it, after eight seasons, you know, you were you were working um, when Trump was in office and things felt a little bit different. Did that impact you at all when you were making choices about, you know, what you were going to include in the show? And also, like, when you when it came to an end, was that part of the the a contributing factor in any way that you felt like, We've said what we're, we've got to say, and maybe now is not the time to continue doing this. I don't think so. I think we'd planned, for some reason, in interviews, we would, I don't know why we threw out the number eight, or like, well, we're going to do eight seasons, something like that, like where we kind of knew, or like, whatever, three more seasons. Um, so we, no, we didn't know. And I think we only did, we shot one season, that last season, while, right? While, while Trump, Trump was in office. office. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I give credit to Fred here and maybe it's his years on SNL, but he was very allergic to, you know, cause in the writer's room by then we had a bigger writer's room. So there, we, we, I went, it wasn't divided in terms of acrimonious, but there were sort of two different 
ways of thinking about Trump. And some of it was to, you know, really like hit it, you know, on the nose with it and just tackle it head on. And then, and Fred was always like, no, 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 let's just move away from that. Like, I think there's, and I, I do know that in some of those sketches in the later season, there's some of the, some of the, um, I don't know, like the ambience of Trump. I can, I can, I remember it entering like the script, but we never were just going at it like a bullseye. You know, I I think there was a, you know, a little like encroaching anxiety, some, some dis-ease, some, you know, characters sort of grappling internally with, with certain subjects. But I think it's really to Fred's, credit and and those who are sort of more on his wavelength there that we just we didn't make it specifically about trump because now mm-hmm. trump's not in office and even though there's plenty wrong with this country a lot of it precipitated uh or i guess um made more uh dire by him you know the, the show if you watch the eighth season it's not like the trump season which right. of course now we wouldn't want you know now yeah like it wouldn't make it timeless that would make it saturday night live exactly <laughs> which it wasn't so yeah right. credit, credit to fred for i think always keeping the bigger picture in mind because there was a lot of you know distress at the time and you as writers you're like let's get in there right. let's mm-hmm. you know but you're not always thinking about five or ten years from from now right so so the winding down of it all was just something you guys decided hey we've done this for eight seasons we feel really good about it we feel good about each other and we've sort of said everything we're going to say for the moment and we're going to put this to bed for the for now and move on is that sort of how it went that's exactly right. It was well put. It's like Doug was there. <laughs> I wish I was so eloquent. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, nice, yeah, a nice sort of uh, like fun way to go. Where we, where we had control over how the show was going to end. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have to ask this because everything gets rebooted these days, but is there any thought in either of your minds of doing something Portlandia related again? I don't know. I mean... It's funny because during, especially those early months, which of course, you know, spread into years of the pandemic, there are a lot of people would reach out to me on social media and say like, I'm really, I've been watching Portlandia. It's just so nice to laugh or to just kind of revel in the absurdity of something or, or be silly. And, you know, you always think, oh yeah, that's, that is, that's something I want too. And it's fun to be on the other side of that and making it. I think we're also conscious of the ways that things have their time and their moment. And, you know, you don't necessarily, I mean, I think we're a little skeptical of like, you know, reunions, like, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's, it can be a dubious endeavor, but I think if there was a way of, you know, one of our writers was like, let's do a Tony and Candace like holiday special. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like that, you know, if, if there's a way to sort of, reframe it or you know recontextualize it maybe that would be fun mm-hmm. yeah I also I I just also think we we had our time and you know I feel lucky lucky we got to do it what about you Fred I, I com- completely agree that's like that's such a nice you know solid amount of time and then we still get to hang the whole point of the show in a way for me was getting to hang out with Carrie so I still get to hang out with her so I still get that that part of the show. And also, you know, the fact that you can still find it and watch it, people enjoy it. And that's great. It's like it it works in the same way that a, a record would work. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. 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 We're going to wrap it up um, with the, the the same way we wrap up every episode, which is by asking you, uh, and we'll take it one at a time. Do you have a favorite all time basic cable program outside of your own? Wow. Okay. Can I <clears throat> excuse my naivety? So basic cable. No, we're, we're, we have to we have to do this for everybody, Carrie, which is which is the most depressing thing about a show called Basic. But yes, what is basic? Which is what is basic cable? So so not HBO, not Showtime, right? So and not the broadcast network. So like you know yes. MTV, Comedy Central, USA, Lifetime, CNN, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, pardon my ignorance. It's so conflated now that I, I have almost forgotten what basic cable was. Well, you're also you're also younger than us, and most people like you know. Carrie under, is my age. Yeah, well, younger <laughs> younger than me. <laughs> to most people younger than me, it's all one thing. But uh, I get it. I get it. Um, okay, Fred, go ahead. I, I think I, I do know my answer, but all right. All times hard though. Man, that's if it's so. Wait, can is MTV included in sure. that? Yeah, course, for sure. Yeah, basic cable. Oh, yeah. then uh, 120 minutes. Oh, come on. Yes, you mentioned that in the in the sketch. You obviously love 120 minutes. You brought it up like twice yeah. in that sketch. Do you remember that? Do you remember the? Uh, do you go back farther than Matt Pinfield though? Dave Kendall. Dave or, Kendall. Um... Dave yeah. Kendall. Fun fact: Dave Kendall, who was like a producer turned on air guy, uh, we had a building at 57th and Broadway. Building still there. And Dave Kendall was there late one night when you could still smoke in the office and was smoking in the office through a, on his way out, threw the cigarette in the uh, uh, garbage can, walked out of the building, two floors in flames. Oh, oh my gosh. Whoa. Yes. True story. That's what, that is the difference between pre-internet and social media and post because- Right. Nobody knows that. <laughs> that would be such a huge story. If that, if someone did that now- Oh, my God. Can you imagine the New York Post the day after? Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. It was like a page six story, but that's about as All far as All the memes. There'd be so many memes of this. <laughs> Dave Kendall memes, yeah. yeah. All right, Carrie, you're up. Okay, well, I was that was one that was one of my choices. Now, I want to say that obviously as a kid, I loved sitcoms. So I couldn't I could name a handful of sitcoms that, you know, were very formative for me. Well, actually do that and then do your cable. I'm curious to know what your sitcoms Well, were. no, no, no. I Well, is, isn't, is basic cable, so I can't, that's not network. I can't even say a network no. show. But she can if she wants to. Okay, well then. What was your favorite sitcom though? We're, now we're curious. Oh, well, back in the day, it was probably Family Ties. I was, I knew um, you were going to say that. I knew it. <laughs> but I was, okay, but I was going to say 120 minutes. That's why when Fred said that, I groaned because uh-huh. I was like, that. that is also, I mean, it just was so formative for me, but I was going to say now realizing that I can't say anything that was network. I won't say what I was going to say. So I, I'm, we're boring. We're, this is why you're going, you're going 120 minutes. This is why Fred and I get along. It's because it was also 120 minutes because there was no other show that I recorded. I, I had that VHS player and I said it in that clumsy way. You used to have to set things so <laughs> analog and cumbersome and you never knew whether or not it was going to work or not. And I would watch it the next day. And yeah. it was just so satisfying. Also, at the time, you're like, ooh, I get to fast forward through commercials, which felt so novel. <laughs> but mostly I discovered, you know, before like radio where you could, or streaming and you had access to 
music from other parts of the world. 120 minutes, you know, it wasn't necessarily global, but for sure you saw bands from England. But you were gonna hear you were gonna hear music that you did not hear on the radio. Yeah, that Catherine yeah. Wheel yeah. or you know Charlotte's Charlottesons. And, and honestly, you or anywhere else on MTV, you know, that was the dirty little secret of MTV. We would make all the promos with all the cool bands from 120 minutes that we really only played once a week. And you know, and then we'd be playing, you know, Paula Abdul all day. Yeah. But like that Petrol Emotion or the Stone Roses, you know, all just these bands coming out of England that, you know, even the record stores, you would have to know who those bands were in order to look for them. So I knew the bands from, you know, previous decades that were from the UK, obviously, but contemporary music, that was harder to find unless they had, you know, broken a certain threshold, like The Cure, you know, or like Finding Cannibals, who actually kind of became a little more mainstream with radio. But those underground bands that weren't being played on even the alternative radio stations, sometimes I, only 120 minutes would, would allow me that, that insight. So I, I have to say the same as Fred because it, it really changed my life. Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, thank you so much for joining us today. We are big fans. We really appreciate you coming on and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. What a pleasure. Okay, so Fred Armiston and Carrie Brownstein, I mean, incredibly cool people, incredibly funny people, and just great vibe and chemistry is what, you know, sort of sticks with me, not only talking to them, but, you know, watching the show and then revisiting the show as I have uh, recently. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the fact that their answer to our, our last question was 120 minutes for both of them, because that felt right. I mean, it, it's <laughs> yes. uh, indicative of, of how much they share a brain or a sensibility and and obviously our... yeah it wasn't going to be club mtv no no <laughs> but just you know like as we talked about carrie hadn't really done comedy like this but there is I, I can't speak to this with deep intelligence but i feel like there is some kind of symbiosis between music and comedy uh in terms of like she was saying she was a live performer in slater kinney so there's a spontaneity and there's a kind of rolling with what's happening in front of you that happens in a live show that i feel like probably translated to what they were doing when they were improvising. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you mention that because, and I didn't get to, I thought about this and I didn't get to ask the question when we were talking to them. You know, she was used to performing in front of, you know, rock audiences. You know, Fred, you know, has done all kinds of things, but best known for Saturday Night Live and a live audience. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, look, I, I was in the comedy business for a long time and it's always been a mystery to me, like how you get on set and, and perform comedic lines without an audience, particularly in their case, where it was sort of really subtle, nuanced, absurdist, deadpan, and and have the confidence that this is working and mm -hmm. you know, this is good and this is funny. So, you know, it's 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 I, I guess it's an innate kind of gift that uh, certain people have. And certainly I think they have it. Yeah. I mean, I um, I had the privilege of being on the set of Veep for a couple of weeks when they were filming their finale. And one of the first days I was there. Julie Louis Dreyfus was filming and Keegan Michael Key was filming with her. He had to come back and do some reshoots. And it was like when those two started working, I was like, oh, these are these are people who know what they're doing. These are masters. They're amazing. And they just come up with stuff just on the fly because they're used to doing that. They're they're trained to do it. And then, you know, the other thing about this show was it ran so long. The quality was, you know, very high throughout. And I think, you know, to a certain degree, it sort of got better as it went along, although it was pretty well baked when it started. All on the IFC network, which was, you know, for, you know, kind of a, you know, a B-level basic cable network. But it, 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 it really lifted that network. 
up and, and really established it to become what they were trying to do, which was become a, 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 a sort of an alternative comedy network. And, yeah. uh, and of course, and of course, Fred went on to do, um, we didn't talk to him about this, uh, but documentary now there, right? Yes, he did. He did. Yeah. I think this is a really great example of, uh, something we were kind of talking about, which is when the platform that is hosting the thing, like the show kind of goes beyond the platform, which is, if you didn't have that IFC, you still knew what put a bird on it was because you could watch right. it online. You heard people talk about it. And, you know, the, the Internet, I think, helped a lot in terms of making some of these sketches become, you know, iconic or whatever you want to call it, making them familiar to people that maybe didn't have IFC and then would go right. back and catch catch up with it. Well, going back to what one of our guests, John Stewart, talked about several weeks ago, you know, does, you know, he said didn't matter the size of the platform, you know, or, you know, the status of the platform, if it was good enough. And in this case, funny enough, people are going to find it and uh, and watch it and celebrate it and keep it healthy. So that's that's exactly what happened. Yep, absolutely. Well, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with uh, Fred and Carrie, and we hope uh, you will join Jen and I next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.